Our purpose, our mission at Crosspoint Baptist Church, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We're going to continue in our series. We've been in this for since the beginning of this year. I've been calling this How God Makes Bad Men Good, the book of Romans. And so hopefully, you know, years from now, you'll look back and you say, hey, what was the book of Romans about? It's about how God makes bad men good or the imputed righteousness of Christ. That is the big churchy term for it. I said it in a way that hopefully you can remember forever and ever. And this morning we're going to be in uh, Romans chapter 8 verses 31 all the way through verses 34, a sermon I'm calling rhetorical questions with real answers. Before we jump in the sermon, I got this little side note here. I got to give a shout out to a, to a friend of mine. Sometimes he's streaming online and watching us, um, Pastor Larry Wood. And I love you, Pastor. Um, there's times, you know Pastor Larry, he's a, he's a madcap. But uh, there's times when I'm writing these messages, you know, I never do it twice the same way. But I'll write it, and I'm like, what am I supposed to call this? This is one of the messages. I had writer's block. I wrote the whole message, and I'm like, I don't know the title of this message. So I text my good friend, Pastor Larry, and I said, Larry, Romans 8, 31 through 34, in like... Eight minutes later, there's a series of texts. Just come back and rapid fire. Bang, 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 bang. Sermon titles. There's like 20 or plus of them. And like the seventh one, I'm like, that's it. That's exactly what I said in my sermon. So it's a gift. Your gift to me, Pastor Larry. A little bird told me he wasn't doing real well, so I want you to know I'm praying for you. So this sermon is called Rhetorical Questions with Real Answers. Let me ask you this question. Does anybody like to be asked questions? I heard not not necessarily. I was thinking you were going to think, well, that depends. Well, let me ask you this. What about rhetorical questions? And you're probably thinking, well, that depends too. Well, the Apostle Paul is about to ask a series of rhetorical questions to the Church of Rome, where we're at in chapter 8 of the book of Romans. And if you really think about it, the Apostle Paul has been asking some ground-shattering questions up until this point. Really, any good Bible preacher, Bible teacher will spend just as much time asking questions as they will answering questions. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing. One of my, uh, my favorite Bible studies, that's exactly what will be going on where the teacher just asks some questions that makes you just pause and think and really get your mind to chewing on what God is trying to tell us in his word. But when you think about that, isn't that exactly what Jesus did? I mean, he was, he was always asking some ground-shattering questions. Well, I think the Apostle Paul, he was clearly taught by the master teacher, Jesus, and so he's just simply doing what he was taught by Jesus right here in the book of Romans. But if we were to back up in Romans, we can read some of the questions that Paul asked. For example, in Romans chapter 3, verse 1, Paul asked, well, what advantage has the Jew? And then he answered that question, basically saying, you know, there's tons of advantage to being a Jew. And then in Romans 3, 9, Paul asked, what, what then? Are we any better off than the Jews? And then Paul essentially said, no. And, and then in Romans 4, 1, Paul asked, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Let me paraphrase the question that Paul was asking there. He's saying, what work was it that did that, that gained salvation to Abraham? And Paul's answer was Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. See, Paul said that, that an individual is saved by faith alone. It's not of good works. And Abraham was his case study for that. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, Paul asked, What shall we say then? Are we continuing sin that grace may abound? And then there was an emphatic no way. 
By no means is what Paul said. And then in Romans 7, 24, Paul asked one of my favorite questions asked in the entire Bible when Paul asked, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then Paul followed up my favorite question with one of my favorite answers when Paul said, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so now we are nearing in towards the end of Romans chapter 8, and Paul's going to, in rapid series, rapid-fire series, ask these questions. Let's read them together, beginning in verse 31. The Word of God says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. So at this moment in Romans chapter 8, Paul is layering question upon question upon question. Paul is building a layer, layered questions like this beautiful wedding cake of deliciousness. More, each question is better than the one that came before of it. And two, at the end, there's nothing that can be added to this. And Paul is basically, he's talking about the love that God has for his family, for those that have been adopted into God's family by grace. There are five questions in verse 31 through 34, and I'm going to address them individually throughout this message this morning. There's another question in verse 35. Lord willing, we'll address that next week, because that, that, that one question is a sermon in itself, if not like an entire semester's worth of awesomeness and some master level at, at seminary. But let's look at the first question again in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Paul asks, what then shall we say to these things? So that's the first question. The first question is, what shall we say to these things? So the question that we should ask ourselves when when we read that question is, well, what are these things? What are these things that Paul is talking about when he asks us, what shall we say to these things? Well, there's two options. Option number one is Paul could be referring to the eight and a half previous chapters of the book of Romans. And if you want to review, Romans chapter 1 tells us that, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Romans chapter 2 tells us that no man-made religion saves anyone. Romans chapter 3 tells us that for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 4 tells us that salvation is received as a gift by faith. And again, Abraham is the the model for that. Romans chapter 5 tells us just as how sure our salvation is. Romans chapter 6 talked about how we've been freed from our old slave master of sin. And now we're freed to, to be a slave to Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 7 spoke very, very vividly about the individual's own personal struggle with sin. And Romans chapter 8 has been all about the love of God. Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8 is about the adoption, that, that, that we are adopted into the family of God. And then it's how we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And we have this new power to live this new life for the glory of God. That's one option. That's option number one. But there's a second option. 
Maybe Paul was not referring to the entire previous book of Romans. Maybe, maybe he's only referring to the previous chapter found in Romans chapter 8. Maybe Paul was, was referring to when he asked, what shall we say to these things? Maybe he was talking about how God foreknew us. And that he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son because he also called us. And those who he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he has given you his word and his promise. There will come a day where you will be with him in glory for all eternity. Maybe that's what he's talking about. When he says, what shall we say to these things? Well, either way, Paul was either referring to the first half of the book of Romans. Or Paul was referring to a believer how... They've been brought to this family by his grace and his love through what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross of Calvary. Those are your two options. So let me ask you what Paul asked when he said, what shall we say to these things? What do you say to those things? And again, I think that's a rhetorical question because the obvious answer is we should be saying yes. <laughs> Hallelujah. I mean, thank you, Jesus. This is the greatest thing in the history of the world. I mean, is there anything better than what we've been laid upon us in the first eight and a half chapters, or maybe this is the last paragraph in the book of Romans? I really wish I had some, some attention-grabbing illustration because I really couldn't come up with one, but that made me think of those infomercials back in the early 2000s when there was that guy that said, but wait, and there's more. And there's more coming in the book of Romans. So the question is, how do you respond to those things? Because really, if we just come here and we hear a, an interesting a message and we leave here and we're not changed, then we're no different than the Pharisees. What do we say to these things? Because at a bare minimum, we should at least live differently than, than somebody who doesn't know what Paul was, was talking about in that first half of the book, right? Maybe you're the type of shout and holler Christian. Maybe you're the Christian that just wants to cry and break down. But at a bare minimum... Every single one of us should be different. So the first question, how do you respond? How do you react to spiritual truth? Why is that an important question? Because we're talking about God's book. This is the only book that God has ever written. So when we come to a place like this, we go to a small group Bible study, and someone opens this book and explains it, how do we respond to the truth that is revealed to us in God's word? Because what I'm talking about here is that God is the teacher and he's telling us to do something through his word. So if we're listening actively, then we should respond accordingly. Because our reaction to spiritual truth determines our action with spiritual truth. Does that make sense? I hope so. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. Read in Matthew chapter 4 verse 19. This is what the word of God says. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Did you get that? Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So, so we, as Christians, we say we're a follower of Jesus. Well, then we have to ask ourselves, well, if we're a follower of Jesus, are we, am I, Fishing for men, because Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. Fishing for men means telling people about Jesus. That means sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, of grace alone, by people who don't know this, right? So one of two things is going on if you're not fishing for men. Either you're not a follower of Jesus, 
Meaning you're not allowing him to lead you or you're not a follower to begin with. Let me give you some practical examples of what I'm talking about. Because Paul said here, what shall we say to these things? And so what happens is you come to a place like this and the pastor, the preacher, the, the Bible study teacher says, open your Bibles to such and such passage. And then we read what's written in that, that passage. And, and, and then someone says, I'm just kind of thinking what, what somebody might say. Someone might say, but yeah, pastor, but this is a hard book to understand. I, I read this and I don't understand all of it. And I'll agree, not all of this book is easy to understand, but there's some parts that are really easy to understand. Mark Twain said, it ain't the parts about the Bible I can't understand that bothers me, but it's the parts I do understand. So let me ask you, what do you do with the parts you do understand? So we come to a verse and it says, don't gossip. We think, oh man, I wonder what God meant. He meant don't gossip. That's what he meant. That's that's the breaking down the text for you. When God said, forgive one another. Gee, I wonder what God meant when he said, forgive one another. He meant forgive one another. It's plain, right? Far too often, if we don't do that, you know what we do? We, we, we hear a text, we hear a message, something like that, and we, the first thing we think of was, oh man, I wish old so-and-so was here. Because if so-and-so was here, they would have heard that message, and that message was for them. That's what we think, right? Come on, I used to sit out there in the pew. I know what's going on. We do that. No, that message wasn't for somebody else. That message was for you. That message was for me. You see, what we like to do, the Bible calls this the sword of the spirit. We like to take the sword of the spirit and just start whacking people and cutting people down. And this verse was for you. And this verse was for you. No, that's not the way we're to use this. We are to to use it on ourselves first, to apply the word to ourselves before we start trying to cut down anybody else. So when you come to church, I think we all, every single one of us, self-included, we need to decide, am I going to do what the Bible tells me to do, or am I going to defy what it's told me to do? Am I going to do what I want to do? Am I going to live my life the way I want to live it, or am I going to live my life the way God is telling me to do it? Because if I don't do what God is telling me to do, it is very clearly called sin, Read what James says about this in James chapter 4, verse 17. James says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We need to be applying these words, these things. What shall we say to these things? First, let's apply them to ourselves. That's what we should be saying to these things. And then doing it. So let me ask you, what do you say about the book of Romans so far? That's question number one. Here's question number two. Let's read it. Romans chapter eight, the second half of verse 31. Paul asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? That, that, that's what Paul said. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Did you know there's a God in heaven? And did you know that he's for you? Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, there are people in the Bible that didn't think God was for them. Actually thought that God was against them. And if there's people in the Bible that felt that way, I know there's people in this room, they're watching online, that are feeling the exact same way. There was a guy in the Old Testament, his name was Job, and he suffered as much, if not more, than anybody else in the history of time. He lost all of his wealth, He lost 10 kids. 
I can only imagine the heartache and hurt. Then he lost his health. And Job prayed at one of the lowest moments of his entire life. He said, why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Speaking of God. You see, in that moment, Job failed to realize that God was for him. That God wasn't against him. You know, and I have to think that really almost every single one of us without fail would feel the exact same way if we were in Job's sandals. We would say, we need to remember when at those moments, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Let me address this issue because this is a very, very real issue. Because there's times when people think, yes, God is against me. So let's address, there's, there's two little letters at the beginning of that question in English, and it's the word if. If God is for you, who can be against you? Because you know, you're thinking, well, maybe God's not for me. Maybe God is against me. Because can we all agree that would be a really bad deal if God is against you, right? So let's try to address the if in that question. Let's back up. Back up three chapters to Romans chapter 5. And specifically, I want to look in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. This is what we've already learned in this book. Romans 5, verse 8 says, But God showed, shows his love for us that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. God allowed what he loved the most, which is his one and only son, to be tortured and died on a cross so that we can be justified by faith in what Jesus did on the cross? Well, what's the answer to the if in that question in Romans 8, 31? The answer is a resounding yes. If God the Father allowed God the Son to be tortured and died so you can be forgiven of my, I can be forgiven of my sins too, then the answer is yes. That God is for us and he's not against us. Maybe this is something we need to remind ourselves of each and every morning. We get up and we, we go, we look in that mirror and we look at that person staring back at us. We have to remember that God is for us and not against us. You know, back many, many years ago, I used to enjoy watching Saturday Night Live. Back when it was funny. It's utterly unwatchable today. But back many, many years ago, there was a skit they would do called Daily Affirmations with Stuart Smalley. It was silly. It was, it was, it was, it was stupid. I said it. <laughs> but every skit, Stuart would look in this mirror and he had this weird smirk on his face. And he would say, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. I might sound weird, but maybe we just need to like look in that mirror and say, since God is for me, who can be against me? If God is willing to make the final decision right here, right now, to say, therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then God is absolutely for you. If he's willing to look at your life and say, justified. If he's willing to pass sentence here and now, because you place faith, saving faith in the God the Son, and He's willing to treat you as if you've never sinned, and God is absolutely for you, right? If God is willing to adopt you into His family, like we covered two weeks ago, we talked about it, so you can call Him Abba Father, and then give you the same benefits and inheritance that He would give God His Son, then very clearly God is for you. God is not against you. But then too many people, they like treat God like he's some kind of cosmic Santa Claus. Oh, God's up in heaven and he's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out if I'm naughty or nice. That's what we think, right? 
God is not some cosmic Santa Claus. God already knows you're not nice. He knows I'm not nice. In fact, he knows just how wretched we are. He knows how better, how bad and naughty we are more than we do. But to that, Paul would ask the question, who can be against us? Who can be against us? That's what Paul is asking. The truth is, there's lots of people that are against us. There is. Because if we truly live the Christian life, if we're out telling people that don't know Jesus all about Jesus, there's people that aren't good with that. And there's people that will try to stop that. If we do anything to try to lift the name of Jesus on high, if we're going up to people that don't know Christ and telling about the gospel of grace, that it's not about works, it's all about what Jesus did on the cross, there's people that will try to tear us down. Because Satan's against us, right? The demons are against us. The the world is against us. The the list of enemies, the enemies of God is, is very long. Unbelievers are not on the side of team Jesus. So let me ask Paul's question just slightly differently. Because this is really the crux of what I think Paul was getting at. I think Paul was saying, well, if God is for us, who cares if someone's against us? That's what Paul is, is, is saying. If the God, the creator of the universe, the, the God that hung the stars and the moon in, in, in orbit and set, set the, the earth in its spin and holds all things together, if that God is for us, who cares if someone's against us, right? You know, there's, the Bible is full of accounts of guys that were on the side of God. They were on team God, and yet they should have failed. By all of accounts, they should have failed. They should have gone down in flames, but yet because they're on God's side, they won. Think of guys like David. You know, David and Goliath, there's a Philistine giant. He's a huge man, and a little Jewish boy goes out armed with a slingshot and a rock, and the boy wins? No way. That's impossible, but because he's on God's side, he wins right? Let me give you one more. There, there's this time when there was this guy that he gets a handful of friends and they go march around the world's most fortified city and they're, they're, they're armed with like torches and pots. And then they break the pots and they yell and scream and the walls of the, the most fortified city and the planet go falling down. But since Joshua's on God's side, he wins. Maybe this is you, Maybe you're sitting there and you're about to do something huge for God. And maybe it goes incredibly well and it supernaturally works out. But maybe it doesn't. Maybe things don't supernaturally work out well. And then you have to go some other direction. But for a believer, you need to know that God is on your side. That things are going to work out the way God wants to work out. Not always the way we want to work out, but it will work out God's way every single time. I need you to know that you can be rejected on earth, but yet still accepted in heaven. So let me just remind you one last time the way Paul did before we move to the next question. The question is, if God is for you, who can be against you? Look at the next question. It's found in verse 32. Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know, Paul is talking about the grace of God here, okay? And I think, it's just, it's in my mind, I see the Apostle Paul, and he's like chomping at the bit to get to Romans chapter 9, but like he still has some amazing truth that he needs to lay on us before he finishes Romans chapter 8. And I say that, but 
Paul didn't put the chapter breaks in. Somebody else did that years later, but just follow me with that. But I think what's going on here, right here in the middle of these questions, I think Paul is being a great preacher. Back when I was in seminary, I had to read a book called A Practical Sermon Guide, uh, excuse me, A Practical Guide to Sermon Preparation by Jerry Vines. Now, if you don't know who Dr. Jerry Vines is, that's okay. But he's one of the who's who of expository preaching. And and he said that every good preacher must beat a path back to the cross at the end of every single sermon. So if you've ever sat in this church and you've wondered, why does Pastor John finish every single sermon the exact same way? Because I'm doing what Dr. Jerry Vines told me to do, and I'm beating a path back to the cross. Because, but really, a, a good preacher will do it not just at the end of the message, but do it in the middle of the message, and sometimes even at the beginning of the message. Because the truth is, you have to do this all the time. You have to keep the listener focused on the cross of Calvary, because we just, we forget. And I think that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing right here. And I have to believe that Dr. Jerry Vines took what he said in his book from the Apostle Paul when, when the Apostle Paul said what he said in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, because the Apostle Paul is beating a path back to the cross. Let me ask you this question. As you sit there, kind of ponder this yourself. Are you ever tempted to doubt that God loves you? you don't have to answer. Let me write that down in the margin of your Bible. Are you tempted to doubt the love of God that God has for you? Are you ever tempted to doubt the grace that God has towards you? Are you ever tempted to disbelieve that God is for you? If the answer is yes, then you need to remember what God's already done for you. We have to look back at the cross. Look at what he's already done for you. Because what Paul is doing here right now in in Romans 8.32, he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. Because we think, we think, man, I wonder if God is for me. That's the lesser. Well, what's the greater? That God allowed his son, Jesus, to be tortured and to die on a cross for sinners. So that you can be forgiven of your sin. That's the greater. The lesser is if God is for me. And so since God has already gave the supreme gift of his son, everything else in life is chump change. Right? There's an old saying that says, I asked Jesus how much he loved me, and he stretched out his arms, and he said, this much. Because if God is willing to give the ultimate gift, the God, the Son, then how will he not also give us freely all things? That's what Paul is asking here in this verse. D.L. Moody wrote about this. This is his illustration. This is in mine. He's trying to explain what all things is. And Moody explained it like this. He said, suppose you went into a diamond store, a jewelry store, and you're talking to the owner of the store, and he said, you know what? I'm going to give you my best diamond. And he pulls out the best diamond, the most costly diamond, and it's absolutely flawless, and he gives it to you. Do you think the store owner is going to hesitate to give you anything else? If you said, hey, can I get a piece of wrapping paper so I can wrap the diamond up to, go, to bring this home? Do you think there's a chance he's going to say, nah, I can't afford it? He's already giving you the diamond, right? The diamond is the ultimate gift. The, the paper is the chump change. Well, the diamond is God given his son for us. Everything else we ask for is, is wrapping paper in comparison. That's what Moody said about this passage. So here's a question. What do you need? I mean, what do you really, really need? Because if you need something, you need to ask. Do you need strength? 
Do you need discernment? Do you need wisdom? Do you need direction? Do you need help? Do you need patience? Be careful when you ask for patience. God will teach it to you. Do you need healing? If you do, then ask God, because if that is what you need, then that is what you will get. Since God gave his son, then he's going to give you everything else you need, right? I'm not saying God heals every single person every single time, but he does when that's when you need. Sometimes we, we need something more than that. But here's what we do know. God wants us to ask. He's a heavenly father that loves his children. He wants us to ask for what we, we think we need. Here's the fourth question. Look at question number four found in verse 33 of Romans chapter 8. Paul asks, who shall bring charges against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Well, let me say this. I'm, I'm one of God's elect. I know that. And I've had charges brought up against me. I've had people say things about me that were just flat out not true. I've been aligned publicly and privately. It's happened to me. You know what? I bet it's happened to most of us in the room. You can be a believer and people say things that aren't true about you. But when Paul asked the question, who shall bring charges against God's elect? This is legal language that Paul is using here. This is language that we would find if we were in a court of law. This verse speaks of formal accusation. Or maybe, maybe, should, maybe a different way, a better way to translate this should be to say, who's going to press charges? Who's going to press charges against God's elect? Let me ask you this. Who charges you with mistakes that you've made? Who's charged you with sins that you've committed? If you're a believer, the answer is Satan. Again, I'm on a roll with Saturday Night Live. Again, back when it was funny, not funny anymore, there was a skit, Dana Carvey was in it, and if you know it, the church lady. Okay, three people, thank you. Um, <laughs> he'd be dressed up like the church lady and said, who might have said that? Was it Satan? That's right, yeah, Satan is the great accuser, and I think that's what, what Paul is saying here. The word Satan, it, it means slanderer. Anybody ever slander somebody, they're acting more like Satan than they are like Jesus. But if you're a believer, Satan knows everything about you. And I believe Satan has put a demon on you to watch you and to relay notes back to his boss. And then the boss accuses you to the father day and night. And then we've got, an, if you're a believer, you've got a defense attorney, greatest defense attorney in the history of time. His name is Jesus and when the accusations come against you, he says, not that one. My blood bought that one, right? But Satan is the slanderer. He's also the tempter. He's the one that whispers in your ear, says, just do it. Oh, just do it. That thing you want to do, it's going to be so much fun. It's going to feel so good. It's going to be the thing you've always wanted. Oh, if you don't do it, oh, you're going to miss out. You're going to miss out. No one has to know. It'll never hurt. That's what he says, right? Have you ever been tempted to do something just wildly out of pocket, out of the blue? You're like, whoa, where did that come from? That was Satan. Satan tempting you. Now, if you give in, that's when he's going to accuse you to the Father. He's going to go to the Father and say, look, they did it. Killed, your holy word says you have to kill them. And that's when Jesus says, not that one, Right? Because Jesus' blood is enough to cover a multitude of sins. But that, when that doesn't work, he just starts accusing you to you, right? He starts whispering in your ear when you mess up and says, Ah, oh, man, I can't believe you did it again. 
That's what he whispers in your ear. I can't believe you did it again. He says, you're weak. You're worthless. God doesn't love you. God has removed his love from you. God is through with you. That's what Satan whispers in your ear, right? Because Satan's the great accuser. But here's what I'll say to that. Jesus is the great savior. End of story. Period. Jesus is, is infinitely a better savior than, Je- than Satan is an accuser. Because Satan may accuse, but Jesus justifies. And God is the one that judges. God is the one that put the gavel down on the believer and says, you're forgiven. You're an adopted son. You're an adopted daughter of the most high God. That's what happens when you place saving faith in what Jesus Christ did for us on, on Calvary. God says you're forgiven. Satan may be the adversary, but Jesus is the Savior. Charles Spurgeon said about this, he said, quote, There's something very comforting in, in the thought that the devil is my adversary. Spurgeon said, I'd sooner have him as an adversary than for a friend. The fact that the devil hates you is proof that you're on the right side. The fact that he accuses you proves that you're on the right side. Because if you become a friend of Satan, the accusations stop. And then life on this earth is going to be easy when you're going with the flow with Satan, right? But if you're going to be on Team Jesus, expect accusations. Here's something this verse should confirm for us. Okay, This verse right here. This should tell you that we're never too bad to save. Have you ever thought that? Don't think like that. I know we think like that. Man, I'm too bad to save. No, this verse would say otherwise. Have you ever thought that salvation was for him, it was for her, it's for them, but it's not for me? Have you ever thought like that? Don't think like that, because this verse would say otherwise. Because if God the Father sent God the Son to be tortured and murdered, then why would salvation not be for you? I mean, think about it. The writer of this letter that we're reading right now that we've been studying for months and months, accomplished murder. He may have not thrown the stones that, that, that killed a deacon named Stephen, but he definitely held the coats so the guys could get a good wind-up and kill somebody, right? And then he's forgiven, he's redeemed, he's saved, and goes on to write so much of our New Testament. You know, but often we think, oh, but I messed up, and God's going to take it away from me. God's not going to give his son, to give his life, to give you justification, and then pull it back like you messed up. That's not going to happen. Because the book of Romans is so much more than a theological explanation of, of salvation and soteriology and all these big churchy words. It's so much more than that. This book is a book of comfort. This book is a book of confidence in what God has done in our place. Let's look at the fifth question. Question number five, verse 34. Paul asks, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So I think this question really ties into the question that just came before. Look at that question again. Paul asks, who is the one who condemns? You know, I bet if I I stopped you in the hallway of church and you're going through, and I said, hey, let me ask you a question. Who condemns? I bet your knee-jerk reaction, you'd say Satan. Right? That's what you would say. You would say Satan. And you know what? Satan does a good job at that. But I think there's somebody who's even a greater uh, condemner 
than Satan. You're thinking, who? Who in the world's a bigger condemner than Satan? That person that stares back at you in that mirror every morning when you're getting ready. Sometimes we are harder on ourselves than Satan. Sometimes we are, we are so hard on ourselves, we do a better job of kicking ourselves when we're down than Satan does. Does Satan kick you when you're down? Yes. Sometimes we do ourselves. Look in 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. It says, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. We need to stop with the self-condemning attitudes of like we're just done and God's done with us, right? You want to know why being a pastor is one of the hardest jobs in the world? Here's one reason. There's several, but here's one of the reasons. Because no matter how hard you try, no matter how much heart you put behind it, no matter how many, how many hours spent on your knees praying for something, when it's totally for the kingdom of God, sometimes you can fail as a pastor. I can think of times I was meeting with a couple and they'd come to me for marital advice. Maybe one spouse has not been faithful to the other and so they're meeting with me and we're trying to work it out and I'm telling about the grace of God and how God wants to change them and use their pain for his glory. And there's this couple and they're trying to patch it up where I'm meeting for weeks and weeks, for hours at a time. There's been times where I get a call in the middle of the night and says, Pastor John, i got to see you right now. And I drive to some parking lot to meet with the husband because he's having a hard time. And then you think things are going to work out. You think, okay, it's going to work out. God is using me to restore this, this marriage. It's going to be fine. Then you find out divorce papers have been filed. And it's going down in flames. No matter how much you tried, it's all going down in flames. And you know who suffers the most? The kids. That's when as a pastor, you get this little voice in the back of your mind. The little voice says, you know, you should quit. Just quit. You're doing a terrible job as a pastor. Everything you're doing is for nothing. Just go get a nine to five job and you know what? The church will be better off. That's when you got to get a hold of yourself. Go, no. No, you got to pray. You got to seek godly advice from other believers that love you because that type of thought life will ruin a man in ministry here's the deal you don't have to be a pastor to think like that i'm willing to bet so many of you in this room right now have this exact same thoughts running through your head god's not up in heaven just waiting for to disqualify you to kick you out to say you you can't build up the kingdom of God anymore. That's not what he's saying. There's a God in heaven that loves his children. He's a father who wants to restore them and use them for his glory. It's all about him. That's why. I heard a story of a college student that was taking a very difficult college course. And this was the first time the course was being offered at this college. And so the, the course syllabus came out and it was long. There was book after book after book you read, and there's all these lectures. And then there's this line. If you've ever taken a lot of college courses, the, one, the line you hate is, and 100% of the grade will ride on the final. Those are the ones like, oh, I hate those courses because you got one shot. You got one shot. It's all or nothing. There's no quizzes. There's no term papers. I know it seems like, well, that's less work, but it's all or nothing. If you fail the final, you fail the class, and that's terrible. And so the class went by, and the course was tough. There's lots of reading, lots of lectures, and then the day of the final came. The, the, the professor hands out the final to the, to the students and said, don't open the final until I say you may begin. 
Then when I say may, you may begin, you have an hour and a half to complete the final. And so the, then the professor said, you may begin. The, the students opened up the final. They turned to question number one. And question number one said, you must read each question before you begin your final. And then, 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 then by the time the, the, the student got to about number 50 or so, the question read, if you read through the entire exam, simply write, finished, on a piece of paper, turn it in and receive an A. And with that, the student took a piece of paper, wrote, finished, turned it into the presser, and walked away knowing that he received an A. All the confidence in the world. He was getting an A. All the while, there's all these other students just feverishly trying to answer each and every question so meticulously, right? And I only tell that story because that's a picture of our salvation. The very last thing Jesus said as he hung on the cross, three words in English, it's one in Greek, tetelestai. Or it is finished. Read in John 19 verse 30. They said, when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and he gave his spirit. I think what the apostle Paul is reminding the church at Rome, and by extension us at this moment, right then, that Jesus Christ, the God-man, he died. You know, that's not all he did. It's pretty earth-shattering that Jesus would leave heaven, live a perfect life, and allow sinful men to take him and murder him. That's amazing, but that's not all he did. Pick up your Bibles, read verse 34 again, the second half. It says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Did Jesus Christ die? Yes, he did. But let me say, there's been countless numbers of spiritual men that have died. Muhammad, the founder of Islam, he died. Buddha, he died. Joseph Smith died. The list goes on and on and on. But there's only one that died and then raised again from the dead. If you want, you can travel to, uh, to uh, the Green Dome in Medina, Saudi Arabia. And there you can see the remains of Muhammad, the founder of Islam, because he died. And that's where he's buried. If you want, you can go to Pinglong, China. That's where the, the remains of Buddha, was, was, he was burned, cremated, and then, then spread over the ground. Because yes, Buddha died, but he, he, that's where he's, he's, his remains are. And if you want, you can go to Nauvoo, Illinois, and there you can see Joseph Smith because he died. But there is no burial place for Jesus Christ because Jesus is not dead, but he's alive. And at this moment, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercessions for his family members. So here's my last question. I'm going to leave you with this. Are you inside the family of God? Are you outside the family of God? Because I called this sermon rhetorical questions with real answers, but these are only rhetorical questions if you've been reborn. If you place saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you've accepted what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. Because there will come a day where the God the Father will ask each and every one of you, what did you do with my son Jesus? What's going to be your answer? Oh, I really like him. Oh, I'm a fan of Jesus. I don't think any of us are going to outright say that. But God knows the truth. Jesus did it all. He did it all so you don't have to die, but you can live forever with him. You're thinking, what do I have to do? There must come a moment you recognize your sinfulness. 
my sinfulness. It, it, every single one of us. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there's no work, there's no amount of being good that's ever going to make us righteous in his eyes. You have to recognize your sinfulness, repent of your sins, turn to Jesus in faith, call out to him, and you will be saved. The Bible says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. If you've never done that, if you feel like you're separated from God right now, just call out to him. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. You died in my place. You died for what I have done. I want to give you my life. I turn, repent of my sins and I turn to you as for my Savior. Save me of my sins. And I say this in the precious holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.